All right, if you have a Bible, we are, we're going to actually study the entire book of Acts today. And you might ask the question, why did we take 40 weeks on it if you're going to do it in a day? Um, it's more like a rinse and repeat review, all right? So turn to chapter 2 of Acts. And we began this study 40 weeks ago. Can you believe it? It was Jan the second week of January we started the study, and we're wrapping it up today. It kind of came to us um, a few weeks ago that maybe what would be good is to package the last couple of chapters that Tyler did last week to leave us a week so that we can go back and reemphasize these big moments of truth that I think affect the church. And, and do you remember if you were here, how many of you were here the very first week we started Acts? Do you remember what we prayed for? We prayed a very specific prayer. God make us the exceptional church. You remember that? And we've said it multiple times since then that we wanted to not just hear these things about history, but become what they represent, okay? <clears throat> so today is kind of a, a rinse again through that truth of what makes exceptional church. And if you haven't been here through our series, let me just fix some problems before we start because <clears throat> there's a there's a potential that the, just the phrase exceptional church sounds a little bit arrogant, and, and that's not at all what we mean by the phrase. Let me define it again, what it's not. It doesn't mean that the church is a group of special insider people, exclusive people. It's not what it means. It doesn't mean that the church is perfect by any shape or fashion. Um, it's not a, a depiction of a church or that we're doing it right and everybody else is messing it up. Come to our church, the exceptional church, and we'll show you how church is done. That's not at all what that means either. The exceptional church phrase simply is a declaration of what we see written here in this narrative in Acts of a group of humbled people, a people from every walk of life, every color and every creed who are sinners all changed by the power of God's grace and mercy, people who keep short accounts with their sin and seek to obey Christ and everything. This is a people who are on mission like we see in the story who are loving the world like they were loved by Christ. <clears throat> Therein lies what we mean by the exceptional church. And we prayed for that. God, don't, don't let us just be okay with knowing more things about what happened to other people. Do in us what you do in your people. Make us like that. So I'm gonna take this entire book and boil it down to two points. You ready? And it will be about this definition, what makes the exceptional church, two things, what it's empowered by and what it's devoted to. I got a cough. Hang on a second. I'll blow out a microphone if I do that with it on. First of all, the church only has one shot at being exceptional. Only one hope. And that's that the Spirit of God lives and takes up dwelling in the hearts of those who confess Jesus. That's the only hope we have. Remember Jesus' promise I mentioned to you in communion. Wait for the promise he said, right? He said, you'll be baptized when you receive the Holy Spirit and power. Go to chapter 2, first four verses. Describe the event of when that moment came. We call it Pentecost. And when the day of Pentecost arrived, verse 1, they were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterances. The promise that Jesus made is, is the hope of the church realized. Transformation and salvation and newness and in the world as we're called to be in the world, it's only possible through the Spirit. And 
He's made that promise. He's kept that promise. In fact, the word that Jesus uses to describe what's coming, remember we told you it's the word power, but it's really where we get the word dynamite from. Jesus has a very specific effect of the Spirit's efforts in our life. Explosive change. Dynamite, dunamis. It's going to blow up the world when the Holy Spirit indwells your heart, church. That's what he promised. Now, I say that and some of us are a little foggy on the Holy Spirit because someone, someone, somewhere has taken hostage the definition of the Holy Spirit and morphed it into something it isn't. We've kind of changed who the, per- the person of the Spirit is into something like an emotion. He's more, he's more like energy. He's kind of like Star Wars the Force, right? He's a feeling. He's not very active, but he's kind of the mojo behind all the real God, okay? Now, that's not at all what the scriptures tell us. The scriptures make it very clear that he's distinct person from the Father and the Son. The most clearest picture I can think of is Mark chapter 1. When Jesus is being baptized, the Son of God is being baptized. It is the Holy Spirit who descends on him like a dove, and it's the voice of the Father God in heaven who speaks over that moment, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. Right there, you have a snapshot of the Trinity, and the person of the Spirit is there. Not an emotion, not a feeling, not not a vibe. He's described in the scriptures as having a personality, as intellect. The spirit searches all things and knows all things. He's got emotion. You and I can grieve the Holy Spirit. He has a will. In fact, the text tells us wherever gifts are given, it is by the will of the spirit that they're given. So he clearly has some work in our life. He shares all the attributes of God. He's eternal. He's holy. He's all powerful. He's omnipresent. He's, he is God. He gives spiritual life to believers. In fact, the text tells us in John 3, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born again by the Spirit. So you and I have no hope, no salvation. We don't get Jesus unless he's real and more than a vibe. He's the source of all truth and understanding. He's the source of all power. According to Jesus, that he says, power's gonna come on you. He intercedes in our prayers to the Father. He's the one that goes before the Father and says, I know it sounds like garbly gook, but this is what he meant to say. They're confused and they're suffering and they're struggling and they don't know, but Father, this is what they need. This is what you give them. That's what the Spirit does. He's the source of all change in believers. In fact, Paul talks about it to the church in Galatia when he says the fruit of the Spirit is what? The fruit of the Spirit What comes out of a person's life, a transformed life, is the things that the Spirit does, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. Those things are the active work of the Spirit in our life. He's not a vibe. As much as people want to push him off in the corner and say he's just a feeling, that's not at all what he is. He's the third person of the Trinity. And what Jesus promised and what, what the Father has planned from the beginning of time has shown up in the church, and the church has been radically transformed ever since. The power, the dynamite lives in us. God could have done anything he wanted to do, but he took up residence in the hearts of people who confessed him. I'm blown. Mind blown. Right? The only shot at being exceptional is that power. Agreed? That's the first thing. Second thing I want you to notice, and you're going to think this sermon's over quickly because I only have two points. Ah, ah, but you think too fast. Um, The second thing the church, um, that makes the church exceptional is what it's devoted to. I don't know if I'll ever know the answer to this, but someday when you and I are all gone, you know, when our moment in this world is over and, and uh, 
someone might consider redemption, Gilbert, what would they say? You know, how would they recall us? <laughs> you know, what, what stories would they tell? I mean, I have, a whole, I have a wish list, you know, like, man, did they love Jesus. And they really loved each other. And they were on fire, like they couldn't help themselves. It just came out of them, no matter where they were, work or play. They were telling people about Jesus. And it was about the kingdom to them. And I hope they say that. I'm not certain I'll ever know what they say. But we do know what they said about the early church, don't we? Because Luke, the writer, tells us what was going on in the early church in chapter 2 and in verse 42 through 47. Let me just read it as a refresher for us of what was happening when the power of the Holy Spirit indwelt this early church. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to breaking of bread into the prayers. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings, distributing them, all the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The first word that stands out to me that I think we've got to clarify so we know what we're talking about specifically as, as far as what we're devoted to is the word devotion. I'm the, of the personality type who loves words like that. If you say, be passionate, be zealous, uh, be on fire, be devoted, be decommitted, I love those words. That kind of fits, I think, the way God shaped me. But let me just state what should be obvious to us. Just because these people were committed doesn't mean they were set apart. Because lots of people are committed. Some people are committed to crazy things. See Las Vegas. Some people are, are more committed than you'll ever be. They're just dead wrong. They, they could be committed to good things, success or making money or ki having kids or whatever, being in shape and exercising, whatever that is. But being committed doesn't set us apart. It has to involve what we're committed to. Agreed? Because you're wrong about what you're committed to. You're just crazy. So today we just want to ask some questions of our lives and see if these things the early church was devoted to through the power of the Holy Spirit show up in our lives. Here's the first thing that Luke tells us they were devoted to. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, or let's just say it this way, the scriptures, truth, the word. Verse 41 says that 3,000 souls were added to their number. 3,000 conversions. How does that happen? One way. They were talking about Jesus. They were teaching about Jesus. They told the narratives of Jesus. They told the stories and the miracles of Jesus. And they confessed the doctrine of Jesus come for sinners. They told the story and people were in. They, they bought into it. They were hungry for it. And shouldn't that be true for all of Christ's church? The word, the scriptures, his word. You know, um, I, I've, for a long time in my life, have longed that God would say something like unusual to me. Doesn't happen. I mean, I've never heard God speak to me like it audibly. Some people say he has. He hasn't ever done that to me. But he has said more than enough. Word of God, are you kidding me? Changes our hearts and directs our lives. Are you kidding me? I got plenty and, and if, if this scripture longing in us, devotion to the scriptures isn't really what we're known for, I could suggest two struggles. 
One might be the fact that there are so many people who profess Christ who make no space for Christ in their devotions. And I'm even meaning sincerely, you just, you just got no margins. You have filled up your calendar. You have no place for it. You haven't made a space for quiet time. And so you might say, yeah, I really, I really want to. I really want to. It's 2018. I'm going to. And you've got all these agendas. It just doesn't happen because we just don't have the discipline to create the margins. The other thing that I think happens in our inability to be devoted to the word, I think, is, is depicted here is the fact that we turn what's supposed to be a devotional, relational kind of experience with the word into more of a how-to manual kind of thing. God, how do you want me to handle my kids? How do you want me to handle my marriage? How do you want me to handle my finances? How do you want me to do this and, and do that? Now, do the scriptures teach us how to walk wise? Of course they do. In every category. So yeah, you can find the things to do in it. But they never tell us to walk wise without walking with him. The point of the gospel is to see and savor Jesus, period. Will you be transformed? Will these other things happen? Of course they will. But if you're not in it for him, then I got some questions. It might, it might conclude why you go to the text and go, you know, I'm kind of I'm dry today. I'm kind of bored today. Because you've removed the relationship from the equation. It's not devotional. And by the way, let me just finish with this. It's not just to know the scriptures and the word. It's to obey the word. We've learned that in this study too, haven't we? By example, we've learned that. In fact, in Acts chapter five, under immense pressure to stop preaching Jesus because the world hates the message of Jesus, it was Peter who said, I gotta obey God rather than man. I know you don't want me to, but I gotta keep going because God told me. When the disciples figured out that somehow they were neglecting taking care of the widows, it was change, obedience, repentance in their life that led them to create this other position of deacons so that they could care for these widows. They obeyed. When in Acts 18, Paul was under the fear of death, like he was really afraid, he forged ahead in obedience to go where God told him to go and do what God called him to preach and say. He was devoted to the word. He was devoted in obedience. Does that make sense? So the early church was devoted to the scriptures. They were also devoted to each other. Again, verse 42 says, to fellowship. And, and let me, by the way, just describe fellowship for you. Turn to chapter four, verse 32. This is a description of that environment. Love it, love it. Now the full number of those who believed were one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. And they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Wow. So they were devoted to each other. Now, just to make a point of clarity here, um, being devoted to each other is more than just hanging. You know what I'm saying? A, a lot of people like hanging over coffee. Hopefully that term works. I don't know. But being together, just to be together. There was much more going on, way deeper going on than just being together. It's what they were when they were together that was the point. They were committed to loving each other. They were committed to service and encouragement of one another. I want to see your faith grow, brother. I'm into you. I'm into watching you grow. It wasn't just sitting and observing. And it makes sense because you have to understand for these 
early Christians to follow Christ, it meant cost. If I follow Jesus, I might lose my job. I might lose my family. Many of them did. You now are my family. In fact, you now are one of the mechanisms beyond just the power dynamite of the Spirit of God living in me to transform me into the image of Jesus. You, brother, will pray for me. You, sister, will call me on my sin. You won't go away. We're committed to each other. It's more than just hanging. You understand? So they were committed to one another. There was a very special bond because they shared their faith. They were brothers and sisters, had same goals and values. They walked the same road together. In fact, in Hebrews 10, my suggestion is it might be the Apostle Paul, who knows? It says this in a description of kind of some command perspective of how important we are to each other. Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing those people on spring break. I'm kidding or fall break, but let us encourage one another all the more as you see that they approaching. Do you see the proactivity that the church has towards each other? Well, let me help you something. We are each other's keeper. It's the way it's meant to be. And you need to understand something here. For me to talk about the importance of belonging to the church at that level and making it a priority in life is not a commercial for me to you about some program we got going on at Gilbert. I don't care. I'm telling you it's a command of God. He said it, okay? You don't grow alone. You need the church. They were devoted to it. Look what else they were devoted to. According to Luke, they were devoted to breaking bread and prayers. Let me just redefine that for you in another way. Worship and prayer, all right? Breaking bread, that phrase many believe is a reference that Luke uses here to the Lord's Supper, like specifically to the remembrance. In fact, Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way when he says, look at these people meeting together there in the early church in one another's houses, breaking bread, declaring the Lord's death until he comes. Many of them were slaves, very ordinary people, having a hard time and being persecuted and maligned, sick in body perhaps, and some sick in mind even. But there they were going through this weary, evil world with the world and the flesh and the devil all against them. But they broke bread. And they remembered not only that Je- what Jesus had done, but what he was going to do. They lifted up their heads and they said, we are destined for glory. We are the children of God. We are joint heirs with Christ and we have an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and unfading reserved for us in heaven. That's what they did. Sound like when you get together? <laughs> they, they were committed to worship, committed to trusting in Christ. And then they were committed to Prayer. In fact, the word that Luke uses here is the plural form of prayers, which sort of implies some kind of a, a disciplined prayer life, that they were praying specific things. They were consistent in their prayer life. These prayers is what we prayed. We remember the Lord and what he did and why we're here, and we also have these things we're asking God about. In fact, Luke, of all the gospel writers, is the one who presents the idea of prayer through the lens of Jesus better than anybody else. And the Savior is the example of what it is to be empowered, yes? Okay, so here's what he says over and over again in in Luke's declaration of Jesus in the Gospels. The other Gospels say that Jesus was in the Jordan River uh, when the Spirit descended on him like a dove. It was Luke who told us while he was praying. Okay, interesting little added thing. The other Gospels tell us that Jesus chose the 12 disciples. Luke is the one who tells us that it was right after prayer. You should be doing some math and hear how important prayer is to us. Other gospels tell us that Jesus died on the cross 
Luke is the one that told us that while he was dying, he was praying for those who persecuted him. The other Gospels tell us that Jesus was transfigured into his glorified image. Luke is the one who tells us that it was while he was praying. The Gospels tell us that the disciples, um, when the disciples kind of went to bed and sleep, it was when Jesus, Luke tells us, that when Jesus went to pray as it was custom for him. Luke emphasizes the prayerfulness of our Savior. And church, to be the exceptional church, means that we emulate him, right? Prayer isn't just a marginal thing we start and end things with. Next to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, it's the way to live it out. I mean, I think it's right there. And I, I confess in my own life, I have fought for prayer in my own life, and I'm still just a, just a puny person when it comes to prayer. But we're going to fight for this. We're, we're going to fight for this. There, we have to be devoted to this worship and this prayer. Look at what else the church was devoted to. They were devoted to their mission. You don't have to turn there, but chapter one, verse eight again, when Jesus says, you'll receive power, and remember what he said, because you're gonna be my witnesses. Where? Jerusalem, here at home. You're gonna be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This whole narrative, 28 chapters, is so intense for one reason in my mind, is because the early church is so tenacious on the mission. The disciples hear, Paul hears, go, what do they do? It's really easy, it's two words, starts with G, ends with O. They go. How many times have you sat in a sermon or some mission conference and they rally the troops about the whole aspect of what the church's role is and we go home and consider. We go home and count the beans we find the reasons why it doesn't fit. I'm, I'm telling you, what makes this thing so compelling to me is they hear go and they go. Three recorded missionary journeys over two and a half decades, 16 chapters. The bulk of Acts is written when Paul just describing, man, I'm just, I'm gonna pay for this. I'm going for it. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, this is what he says his experience was going. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, hunger and in thirst without food, often in cold and exposure. And above all of that, I carried around the weight and anxiety of worrying about the church. That would be a reason why I wouldn't go. <laughs> and Paul said, no, 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 I'm tenacious about the mission. The mission is the point. If the mission isn't a part of this story, we go to heaven. There's no need to be here. We're his mouthpiece. The mission that drove Paul was that he just considered all these lost people with no hope under the weight of God's judgment without Jesus. Do we feel it? Do you feel it towards those you don't like? We should. I think the exceptional church has to keep its eye on the mission and it's not our health and it's not our safety and it's not our comfort. That's not what the mission is. The mission is to go into the world. It's interesting to me, I went back and all of this thing and I just sat down and I flipped through these pages except for the very first chapter of Acts. 
27 chapters in a row deal with this aspect, a going for the gospel, a presenting the gospel, and a responding to the gospel. You tell me, why do you think it's there? I mean, he could have said it in a sentence, done. But he says it and repeats it and repeats it, and the example of the church for the entire, you know, some 30 years of Acts is there. Let that sink in. Here's the fifth thing we're devoted to. We're devoted to loving people who are different than we are. In fact, in chapter 10, and this might have been a moment that left the mark for us, in chapter 10, God teaches the church about elitism and racism, something that early church needed to learn, something the Jews needed to learn, something that uh, hasn't gone away from our culture. I'm going to paraphrase the story a little bit so that you can get caught up to speed. We'll read a few things. But this is a story about a Roman centurion named Cornelius. He's from the Italian cohort, so just paraphrase. He's, he's from a pagan um, Gentile place, and he's a pagan Gentile man. Jews don't go those places. They don't talk to these people. In fact, here's the story starts with Cornelius, um, who's described as a God-fearing man. In other words, I just think that means he was monotheistic. I think he believed in one God. I think he probably had the Old Testament scriptures and believed in whatever that presented. I think he tried his best. And he was sincere as sunshine, and he prayed, and he prayed hard. And the Bible says that an angel appeared to him and said, you know, the Lord has heard you, man. And so I want you to ask for this guy named Peter to come. So he wakes up from that dream. Stop. Another story. Off in another place. Peter's having his own dream. Peter falls asleep because he's hungry. Never been there, okay? He falls asleep and it says that he sees in his dream this sheet being let down from heaven with all sorts of animals and reptiles and birds in it. And the voice says, rise, kill, and eat, Peter. And then begins a three-staged argument against those words. I don't do that. I don't go there. Never have, never will. Those things are unclean. So there's, there's this list, whoever you are, of things that a good resecting Jew won't do, won't go. Now, you're going to see what God was trying to say. It also includes people. So it says that, that he made this argument three times, and then finally, what is said from the voice is what God has made clean, let no one make unclean. You don't, you don't call it common. And then, of course, that... Sheet was taken out of heaven. He wakes up from his dream and then comes these men from Cornelius to invite him back to his house. And my assumption is that journey, however long it was, was kind of that self-college moment for, for Peter. Like, what did that mean? What's going on? Well, somehow, by the time he arrives at Cornelius' house, a place he probably never wanted to go, didn't think he could go, the unclean man in an unclean place, he shows up and the lesson is there. He knows what it means. This is what he interpreted. Look at verse 25 through 28. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. And Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I too am a man. In other words, I'm nothing special, man. I'm just like you. And as he talked with him, he went in and, and found um, many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is, paraphrase, for me to be here with you. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. You want to know why? Skip to verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand what, that God shows no partiality. 
but even in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of everybody. The lesson that Peter had to learn is that God doesn't show favoritism, that God shows according to his words, no partiality. Do you realize how small this whole book would be if this chapter wasn't in here? We'd be done like chapter four. We'd be on to Ephesians. But God had a statement to make to these Hebrew men taking the voice of his gospel to the world, a world that they didn't want, didn't like, didn't love, a world that they looked down on, thought they were superior to. And he says, let me just fix this right now. You're no different. Everyone, everyone is the same at the foot of the cross. Everyone's a sinner in need of God's grace. Do you understand? And God made it poignant to Peter and it changed the direction of the church. Hence then 18 other chapters of going into the Gentile world while the Jews said, no thanks. The empowered, exceptional church doesn't see racial lines. It doesn't see us and them. No one is better than another. We are all sinners in need of God's grace. Amen, church? We learned that lesson. Let me give you one last thing they were devoted to. They were devoted to the gospel. Again, just a reminder, in Acts 4, in one of the sermons, best sermons I've ever heard, Peter makes it clear, there is salvation in no one else because there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved in the name of Jesus. That truth right there is the good news. In spite of all the world's attempt to redefine what good news is, that is the exclusive good news. The good news isn't moral reform in our country. The good news isn't peace in our world. It's not the elimination of sickness, poverty, or pain. It is not racial reconciliation. It's not tax reform or social justice, all great things, and I pray they all happen. The good news is that Jesus died to save sinners from their sins, period. Don't let anybody confuse it. And if you want to see anger and frustration in the world and you talk about the exclusivity of Jesus and they are mad at you, you found another gospel. There's another good news in their heart, something else they feel like you had to have and Jesus isn't enough. And I would just su suggest to you the church has a lot of those too. Like if we stripped everything out of your life and all you had was Jesus, is that enough? You couldn't have anything. Anything you value, anything you care about, you can't have any of it. All you can have is Jesus. Is that the good news? They were devoted to the exclusive good news. Jesus for sinners. That's it. There's only one gospel. And if you don't need Jesus, then you don't have the gospel. Every once in a while, I'll think about what it would be like if Jesus would take on flesh again right now and come into our world. Like if he walked into your coffee shop tomorrow morning and just sat down, what would he say? Or if he bopped over to the UN and took a chair at the table, what would he say? What would it be like if he was at Las Vegas on Sunday night, what would he do? And even though I think those thoughts, I already know the answer, right? The funny thing is, he is there. He's walking and talking through us. The exceptional church. 
a people saved, a sinner saved by grace. What makes the exceptional exceptional is Jesus in us. Us talking like Jesus and going like Jesus and loving like Jesus, compassionate like Jesus, understanding like Jesus, humility like Jesus, obedience like Jesus. So can I give you some homework this week? Ask yourselves this week as you're going about whatever you do, would Jesus talk like I'm talking right now? And would he work like I'm working right now? And, and, and would he think what I'm thinking? Just, just remember his presence in you this week because you're his presence in this world. Do you understand that? Let's pray for that help. God, I do pray um, that we, your church, clearly broken and, and sinful, but covered in the righteous robes of Jesus. That God, we could leave here today with the, the privilege and the honor of being your bride filled with your spirit so that the main thing in our life, the main thoughts and concerns in our life are your thoughts and concerns. Lord, I pray that the next time somebody bumps into us, they see Jesus. It's only possible through the empowerment of your spirit, so we pray for as much help as you will give. We pray in Christ's name, amen.